Do I think that we need to form a cult and a terrorist organization and blow up buildings to do that? Probably not. But definitely not FBI people that are listening. Definitely not. (laughs) No, definitely not. Hey there, I'm Jordan. And I'm Nick. We're just two regular guys who love talking about film. And now we'd like to talk to you. We decided to break down our discussions into three parts. Because everyone loves a gimmick. We discuss our expectations for a film before we watch it. That's take one. We give our immediate thoughts following the film. That's take two. And finally, we research the film at length to prepare for an informed and in-depth discussion. And that's take three. So if you love film even half as much as we do, join in on the conversation. This is Take Three, a movie podcast. Take one. That was an adventure. Yeah, you guys are not going to believe what we just did. Oh, wait. If you listen to the last episode, you will believe what we just did. If you listen last week, this is us recording immediately after that. Yeah. So we tried to talk about Fight Club, and instead we wound up talking about everything but Fight Club. And it's so funny because you said that we can't talk about Fight Club, and we wound up not talking about Fight Club. Look at that. We talked about God. We talked about pizza. Talked about girls. We talked about miracles. Yeah. I had fun doing it, though, and um, that's all that matters. I don't care what anyone thinks. Even me. Nope. <laughs> what do you think this podcast is for you? You thought. Yeah, so we're talking about Fight Club, and I just want to stay on track. We're talking about Fight Club, Fight Club, Fight Club, <laughs> Fight Club, Fight Club, Fight Club. I've seen this movie once probably 15 years ago. So while I am a fan of almost everyone involved, David Fincher, amazing. Yes. Brad Pitt, amazing. Edward Norton, amazing. Helena Bonham Carter, amazing. Uh, I really don't remember a lot of this. I do know the famous twist. And if you don't know the famous twist, I would really, really, really recommend watching this with us because we are certainly going to spoil it. We will definitely spoil it. And I think once again, we're shouting Jaden out because I think much like Saw, I feel like this might be a little bit old for him. So Jaden, if you're listening, you actually need to watch this movie first as well. Definitely. It's it's worth it. This is one of those really, really good ones, twist wise. I, get, I can't remember if this movie's like really that great. I think it is, though. I think people really like it. Can you imagine if we watch this movie and be like, we can't, we can't do this. We can't do this. Oh this happened for so many movies in this podcast where we start it, we watch the movie and we're like, we just can't do this. There's no way that we can do this. I hope that's not the case. It's The thing is, is that we can. Our format lends itself to being able to do it with any movie because at the end of the day, we can just talk about behind the scenes shit or about how much we dislike the movie. It's we don't want to do these movies, but I think we'll want to do this one. I agree. I think I'm coming more from a standpoint of what if there's something in there that's problematic that we can't oh, cover because that's and happened before. Yeah, it's Chuck Palahniuk, so uh, right. it could be very right. problematic. If you guys don't know who Chuck Palahniuk is, he is a writer who wrote the book Fight Club, and he really loves to just write offensive, ridiculous shit. <laughs> he does. And much like you, I've seen this movie once. I remember enjoying it. I remember not seeing the twist coming. Like, it, it was a surprise for me. See, I already knew the twist. Oh, that's a bummer. 
Yeah. I had seen it before I had read any of his stuff. I remember recalling it and it being like just as snarky as his writing is. Yeah. I was like, oh yeah, this is a very Chuck Palahniuk movie. Like when he's talking about the Ikea furniture in his apartment and stuff. We'll get there. We'll get there. But I remember liking it. I think I still will. Most people that I know that have seen it enjoy it. I'm thinking about Chuck Palahniuk and I just want to talk about another book he wrote. (laughs) (laughs) This is not I've funny enough I've not actually read Fight Club. I've I've read maybe 80% of his books. I've not read Fight Club. Really? I'm not sure I will either, but that's funny. Um, I think I know where you're going with this though. So I I like Chuck Palahniuk somewhat. So I've read some <laughs> of his work and I think that he just likes to show off. <laughs> However, there is a book called Haunted Uh, that I absolutely love. It's a collection of short stories, but they're all woven together with a big story. Yeah, It's gross and disturbing and genius. It really is. The reason I love that book so much, it was one of the first that I'd read of his, so I wasn't really familiar with like his style or anything. But I really appreciate his ability to just go there and not give two shits about the reaction. Like He does not hold back at all. And I just appreciate the hell out of that bravery. Like I I just, that's awesome to me. So if you've ever heard of haunted, I'm sure that you've heard of a story called guts. It's free online. You could probably find it online somewhere if you want to read it yourself. Yeah. And while I haven't read nearly as many books of his as you have, if I were going to recommend a story to maybe get a sense of (laughs) Chuck Palahniuk, I would recommend to read Chuck. (laughs) Yeah, I would definitely recommend Guts. If you can handle Guts, I think you can handle anything he's going to throw at you. So this isn't Take Three, a book podcast, but (laughs) Chuck Palahniuk might be worth looking into for readers, you know, that maybe haven't heard of him or want something really awful to read. Not that not it's not awful like they're bad. It's awful like what's happening is awful. I feel like I did warn this at some point. I there were some hesitations about doing Fight Club as an episode because I was like it's just going to be me talking about how much I love Chuck Palahniuk the whole time. And that very well <laughs> yeah. could be the case here. So, uh be forewarned, be prepared, but no, I'm I almost said it. I almost said the e-word. I almost <laughs> said it. I almost said it. <laughs> as long as we don't start talking about something completely <laughs> random, like I, I almost took us off on a tangent with the books. So <laughs> Fight Club, Fight Club, Fight Club, Fight Club. Fight Club. We must talk about Fight Club. Yes. Nothing but Fight Club. Um, I'll do my best. No promises, but I'll do my best. You know, all I can think of is like the last shot. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, oh my God, iconic. I know that it's like a big deal, but... I don't know. I can't remember anything else. <laughs> I remember soap and a briefcase and AA meetings and uh, Helena Bonham Carter smoking a cigarette. Like Sounds like a good time to me. What more could you want out of life? <laughs> Let's get into it. I'm so excited. <laughs> Day two. The amount of money I would pay to be able to have seen that for the first time again. (laughs) That was really, really fucking good. There's a lot that I like about it, for sure. And some that you dislike? I probably said this in take one, but 
one of my problems with Chuck Palahniuk, who is the writer of this book, which I can imagine, I don't know, I, I've not read the book, but I can imagine that a lot of this quirkiness and dialogue and things like that might have been at least inspired by this book, you know? I don't know how faithful it is, but I can just imagine. It did <laughs> definitely sounded like Chuck Palahniuk in my head. Yeah. And I think sometimes, even though Chuck Palahniuk tells stories like you and I would speak, and he doesn't get wrapped up in all of these flourishes and adjectives and adverbs and all this stuff, sometimes I think he saddles his characters with knowledge that doesn't really make any sense for them to have. I know it doesn't have to be realistic. It's obviously heightened because it's a movie or a story, but I don't know. It's just sort of like hard to follow in the middle. I'm like, what are you guys talking about or doing right now? I could see that we were coming to the end and I certainly remembered the end. So, so I had to quickly pull up a, a bibliography of Chuck Palahniuk's works and I just quickly counted. I've read 12 of his books. I don't know how many total he has, but I just counted. I've read 12 of them. That's awesome. I think my point with all of this is you were sort of like, uh, I don't know how much of it was inspired by the book. You know how I feel about reading books before I see the movie. This one, I feel much differently because I am fairly certain that David Fincher did not have to change much. You can spot this as a work of Chuck Palahniuk from a mile away. He has so many mannerisms. He lists a lot of things, especially when it comes to medications. He has uh, repetitive... I don't know what you would call this, but anytime he was like, I am Jack's so-and-so, I'm sure that was littered all throughout the book. And he does this with pretty much all of his books. And so I feel like I assume, and this will probably be a take three thing, I assume that if I were to look into this and figure out the differences between the book and the movie, I'm sure that they are probably very, very similar. I believe it too, especially because we just did Gone Girl and they were pretty similar yeah. as well. They didn't yep. have too many differences yep. either. One thing I notice, and I feel like I've noticed this in other stories, is that Chuck Palahniuk often includes things that exist in our world that seem mundane, like an Ikea catalog and the prices for everything. And, and it's just like, I wouldn't have really thought that that would have made its way into a movie, you know, yeah. but it, it actually makes a lot of sense. And that seems to be his style as well. Yeah. He's sort of like... Uh, I don't want to call it pretentious because I, and I also don't want to say that I agree with a lot of it. Like, do I think that we really do need to step back and stop caring about what we buy and we need to be super conscious about like what the media is telling us and stuff? Yes. Do I think that we need to form a cult and a terrorist organization and blow up buildings to do that? Probably not. But definitely <laughs> not say, FBI people that are listening. Definitely not. <laughs> no, definitely not. Definitely not. He's a very smart man, I think. Or he has very good sources. I can't even count how many times I've had to do this reading his books where he'll bring up something like some kind of fact. For example, when he uh, talked about the soap and how he talked about the orange concentrate and the gasoline. When he uh, – Jack's job. I assume – Jack's is Jack is like the other alter ego, right? He's Tyler. He's like the good guy, right? I assume when he's saying I am Jack so and so that he was referring to himself. Do I have that right? I would assume so. I I was thinking like I'm listening out for his name. I know that they're the same person, yeah. but I'm like wondering what they call him. And at first, when they were calling him like Cornelius and like the different, yeah, yeah. and I was like, wait, that's not it either, because I couldn't remember exactly what his name was. Yeah, I had that thought too. I was like, okay, I know the twist. Are they intentionally not bringing up his name Probably. because this whole time he's Tyler Durden? 
uh, I'm just going to call him Jack, but his job about uh, the recalls and stuff, uh, he puts like little things in there that you probably wouldn't believe. I think it's, it's like flooded in haunted. He does that a lot in haunted and for things that I'm like, there is no way that that's true. I cannot believe that I've looked them up several times. He is pulling from fact. So I think that's something that I appreciate about Chuck Palahniuk. That's what I think is kind of my draw to him is that he just kind of knows these things and is able to tell them in a very inspiring and interesting way. But I really appreciate the work that goes into the research for like a lot of authors that I've been reading the problem that I have with Chuck Palahniuk and maybe one of the problems that filtered into this movie was it sort of came off maybe like that was sort like of bloating. Yeah, like it was an overload of that and I was not being led through the movie. Yeah, it, it almost felt as if that was bogging down the story for me. Like I don't want to say that I don't understand the story because I do, but it just felt like so much extra in the middle. And I know where it comes from because I've read Chuck Palahniuk and uh, like the sex doll one snuff. Yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) I, (sighs) it wasn't a sex doll. It was, it was someone. Okay. It's just, it's a sex doll on the, it looks like a sex doll on the cover, but they're trying to make a, like a big porn or a big snuff film. They're trying to kill the woman or something. I think the the story is she's trying to break the record for most people have having sex in one day or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah. And I think okay. it ends up being they a snuff film. Yeah, they, they fuck her to death. Fuck her to death. That's <laughs> that's Chuck Palahniuk. This is this seems a lot more tame than than some of the stuff that I've read of his. I don't remember what I was saying. One thing I I am uh, beat Edward Norton. His name in the credits is the narrator. Oh, okay. So he doesn't have. Okay, so I, that makes me wonder. God, okay. So you said this story wasn't confusing. I'm honestly still a little bit confused about some things. I don't understand the point of the fighting. Honestly, I don't really understand the source of that. I don't know if it was coming from sort of like a misogynistic angle to kind of show men's aggression or something or if it was more of a control thing it probably Um, has a lot to do with both of those things but it was certainly you know at least at face value a substitute for the release he was getting from crying each night so now he was able to actually like feel pain sometimes like i've experienced this too i don't i've not had insomnia but i've dealt with like anxiety and depression and stuff like that a lot of times you feel numb and Mm -hmm. You, you've dealt with stuff like this too. Like you, yeah, you feel numb and then you're just like looking for something to actually cause you to feel something. And yeah. a lot of people go in it in the absolute most dangerous way possible. I mean, I don't know that there are actual fight clubs, but there probably are, especially because this movie's 22 years old now. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it is like, I, I don't mean to trigger anything here, but it is, I guess it truly is like a form of self-harm, especially in, oh, yeah. you know, Tyler's case. So yeah, I think that's something that I want to explore in take three as well. But like, I don't remember the ending impacting me as much as it did tonight. And I remember throughout the movie, you were kind of saying like, oh, I'm not so sure about this. Like, I don't, you know, I, I don't remember a lot of this. Uh, and if there was any kind of hesitation about how I felt about this movie, that the way that this movie capped itself off was just uh, that that end scene, like you said, in take one is just uh. I remember the end scene. But what really put icing on the cake was the dick shot. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that was just so clever. I love it when actors break the fourth wall. I love the sort of, I feel like Tarantino has this approach where he stops the story for a minute and he's like, yeah. I'm just leveling with you guys. Like, let's talk yeah, about yeah. what's actually going on. But like, I really liked that style. Yeah, it, it fit well for the story. Yeah. And I don't, because I, I recalled the scene about the, the film splicing, and I don't know if that kind of triggered my head thinking about the the scene in Inglorious Bastards where I think it's Samuel L. Jackson's voice over going about like, this is film and it's this flammable and they have this much in the attic or whatever. Exactly. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yep. But did you notice that they also spliced in Tyler's body? Oh yeah, in the beginning like he was scenes? popping okay. up in the yes, and so yeah. I was thinking about the fact that like if you notice that and the way that they've edited like their first encounter where he's sitting there talking to this woman, and I I know we're probably just supposed to think that this is another flight because it's very rapid, fast paced editing, and we're jumping from flight to flight. But he just sort of pops up there. I wonder like if anybody had the suspicion all along that he wasn't real, you know? You mean people outside of the Fight Club or? No, I'm talking about like the audience. Oh, I see. I see. Okay, here's my problem with the twist. This is sort of like antithetical to what I was just talking <laughs> about because like I'm, I was wondering if there were people that, you know, could have guessed the twist. But here's my problem. You know how we talk about how the best kind of twist is one you can watch back and you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense and new things make sense and stuff. Sure, there's some stuff that makes sense with Marla. Mm -hmm. Or is it Marla? Helena Bonham Carter's character? Marla, yeah. 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 But – and I mean they explained this, but like there were so many shots and scenes where people were talking to Brad Pitt. But in those same scenes – and I noticed – because I was on the lookout for it too – in those same scenes, they always cut back to either like if someone's talking to Tyler or if someone's talking, we'll call him Jack or the narrator. The other persona is kind of in the background, like watching. They always shoot to to the other character, oh, kind okay. of like seeing the conversation yeah. happen. Yeah, that makes so, sense. Okay, that's not as I just, to me. I just I guess my my issue was that the first moment that I even if I had the suspicion that Tyler wasn't real. The first moment someone came up and talked to him. Okay, so this is a movie that I I think everybody has seen, but it's going to help my point to bring it up. If you have not seen The Sixth Sense and (laughs) don't want it spoiled for you, you really, if you haven't seen The Sixth Sense, just fast forward like a minute. But also go watch the, and if you haven't found out the twist about this already, then. Yeah, then we'll count yourself lucky and go watch (laughs) it. But basically in that movie, you can rewatch it and nobody talks to Bruce Willis. You know what Uh, I mean? Okay. Like he even sits down and has dinner, but they show them and they're not talking, you know, Mm -hmm. and you can rewatch it and it plays out perfectly with this new knowledge and nothing sort of like flies in the face of that. I mean, I understand that they kind of had to do that because Tyler had to be this sort of, I don't want to say like cult leader, but kind of like <laughs> he he kind of had to be this presence. Um, yeah. Like Brad Pitt had to actually talk to people. But I don't know. I wish that you could go back and actually see that this twist actually works on replay. And it doesn't technically, I guess. You know what I mean? Yeah. You have to like yeah. realize that we were seeing it through Edward Norton's eyes, which again is just me nitpicking. I don't fucking know. (laughs) I I liked the movie. 
Good, good. I'm going to try my best to keep take three uh, specific to David Fincher and the uh, cinematic fight club instead of just talking about Chuck Palahniuk, even though I really want to. Uh, I will. I will do my best. I agree. Talk about Fight Club, and I think you should talk about the book Fight Club. But also, some people might not know who Chuck Palahniuk is, and I think it might be. I mean, I, we talked a little bit about it in Take One, and we're talking about it now. But it might be good to maybe like make a recommendation or two, or talk to you about <laughs> how you got it. I'm serious. I mean, like I know we're a movie <laughs> podcast, but this guy has written a book that this movie is based on. And I would love to hear your thoughts on his books. And what? We're going to – we could kill some time. (laughs) I'm laughing just because of uh, a lot of his content is very much rated R. I'm I'm recalling back to a few moments in Haunted. In one of his books, uh, I read Damned, and it's about a girl who mistakenly gets sent to hell. And there's like uh, lakes of semen. And uh, there's just – his content is very, very much – NSFW, but I can definitely talk about my favorite Chuck books because I certainly have several. I'd love to. I'll I'll uh, come up with some recommendations for Take Three. <laughs> good, good deal. I mean, we're pretty much rated R anyway, so sure. Yeah, I guess so. I will not be splicing pictures of your dick with this though. What? Not that that's even possible. Sorry. <laughs> some people have been like, "Oh, you guys should go to YouTube and have like a like a live recording of yourselves." Well, first off, that <laughs> that's not a good idea cuz we edit the shit out of these things. But <laughs> if we ever did, it should just be like splices of dick pics while we talk. <laughs> this is Take 3, a penis podcast. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Man, well, we can always do like a like a spinoff podcast. I, I'm not sure I want to be a part of Take Three of Penis podcast. Uh, you might have to take that venture on yourself. I'm sorry. I can carry the load. <laughs> God, do we have to like extra flag this episode? Oh, yeah. <laughs> First of all, shout out to Nick and Jordan for killing it as always. Am I right? Yeah, they're awesome. Hey, I'm Stephen Crocker. I wanted to take a second to invite you to check out my new podcast called Dumbest in the Room. I talk with people who have different jobs and are life experiences and learn a little bit about what it is that they do and how they got there. The best way to stay learning is to always be the dumbest in the room. It's been a lot of fun talking with and learning from people, and I hope you'll join me. You can follow Dumbest in the Room at Dumbest ITR on all platforms, and the show is available everywhere you get podcasts. Back to you guys. Take three. Guess what I noticed? What? This is actually our 70th episode. Really? Yeah, because we have this will be episode forty-one, and we have twenty-eight quick takes, which that would be sixty-nine, and then we have the we explain movies crossover, and that's seventy. So yes. sixty-nine. No, that's great. That's awesome. You're a dork, but yeah, congrats on making it this far. Yeah, it doesn't feel like seventy episodes. Like that's crazy. We need to figure out what to do, like what we're gonna do in thirty episodes. Oh, yeah, that's going to be exciting. That's a big milestone. That'll be here before we know it. Yeah. Although I think we probably churned out like what? It's March. We probably churned out like four four episodes uh, this year. So I mean, we're not moving we did, at, a, at a rapid pace, but. We did just release. I think I feel like we put out a lot this season so far. A, a couple quick takes, yeah. I just mean like full-on episodes. I think we only got Spider-Man and Gone Girl so far. And now Fight Club. Wait, really? 
Yeah. I just don't believe you. Are you Instagramming? Yeah. What was our finale of last season? Without looking at our Instagram. Die Hard. No, it wasn't. Oh, not of last season, but like before the hiatus. Oh, because that was our Christmas movie. Yeah. How have we only done two full movies in three months? How does that happen? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> we didn't start until like the end of January, I think. True. We're creeping. We'll eventually get there. Season five, <laughs> probably. <laughs> but yeah, congratulations. 70 episodes. It doesn't feel like yeah. it's been yeah. that long. To you as well. So did you find some good shit? I did find some good shit. Did you find some good shit? I think so. So I'll, I'll start off like I always do with the money. So this movie actually didn't do so hot. It had a budget of $63 million and it made $37 million domestic, $63 international. And so that makes it $100 million worldwide. Jeez. So on a $63 million budget, that that doesn't uh, compute. No. But I think that, you know, uh, so I don't know if I've used this word on this podcast before, but there's something called the ancillary market. And that's basically everything but theatrical. So if it, it plays on an airplane, plays on demand, if it's if you buy a DVD, I'm sure that it's made some good money there as well, because this is a very popular film. Right. Yeah. I mean, speaking of that, it has a 79 on Rotten Tomatoes critic score, but uh, something I don't normally bring up because I know that it can be not easily tampered with, but there have been ones that have been tampered with. But the audience score for this movie is actually really good. So I just wanted to mention it. It's 96%. Oh, damn. Yeah. So I, I mean, mean, those are both very positive, I think. Yeah, very respectable scores on both fronts and uh, f- for a very well-made movie. I mean, I can definitely imagine that it's not for everyone. So I am sort of surprised that 96% of the audience that rated on Rotten Tomatoes gave this a positive review. You know, I, I mean, I could see it turning some people off. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, just with the violence and... It's, it's funny because this is one of the more tame... Chuck stories, so it's it's funny hearing that, I guess. Yeah, I know, like, you had told me you were going to talk about some of the Chuck stories, and I just, I've been thinking about it since, probably since I found out who Chuck Polinick was. Like, I didn't know really who he was until I met you, uh, and uh, I've always wondered why the hell Fight Club is really the only one that stuck. Well... <laughs> Uh, This has been, I actually took this out of my notes because I was like, we don't need to talk about this. But guess what? We're going to talk about it since you brought it up. There have been several uh, conversations and several of his stories that have been bought. Like the rights have been bought to his stories for films. I'm sure sure they get optioned the moment that these stories get published or even before that. Well, so the only two movies that are out – that are adapted from his stories are this one and choke. choke. Yeah. I've read choke. Uh, I've, I've seen the movie choke. I've enjoyed both of them. Um, but I remember in college, I actually donated to a Kickstarter that was supposed to do a film on lullaby on lullaby. Yeah, I did too. Still have not gotten the perks from that. Still have not gotten any updates on that Mm -hmm. whatsoever. And it's been what, almost 10 years now. Um, the, there have been other stories of his that have been bought and uh, they've even teased casts 
Like they, I think Jessica Biel was supposed to be in several projects of his. James Franco was supposed to be in some others. Uh, and they just stall. They just don't. At the very end of, I forget what book I was reading, but it was some promotion. It was on the Kindle. I think it was a short story, Phoenix or something. Mm-hmm. It said uh, that the the rights to Haunted were bought. And that was going to be made oh into a movie. That and needs to be like, a TV show. Where are these things? Like yeah. they just they just disappear, and I don't know if there's something That's Hollywood yeah. bigger in the background happening. I don't know, but it it's really upsetting because I'd love to see more of his stuff. Take comfort in the fact that all it's going to take is one. All it's going to take is one movie blowing up, and then there will be uh, all of them will get made, and they might not all be good, but that's what <laughs> happened to Stephen King. Stephen I mean, King, it, yeah. like we think about, I mean. We definitely have had some amazing Stephen King movies made over the years, but when it came out and blew the roof off, then everybody started making them, and everybody still is, you know? Everybody's like, oh, I'm going to take a Stephen King story, and we're going to make the new you know, blockbuster. Do you mean the miniseries? Huh? Do you mean the It miniseries? No, I'm talking about It Chapter 1 that came out in I guess 2017 was that 2017 do you think that that was his like that was the breakout movie that everyone was like oh I'm gonna start making adaptations so like I said there obviously have been several adaptations over the years but that particular one being an absolute explosion the highest grossing R-rated movie of all time definitely got everybody to be like i think we've gone over this in the stephen king episode there are more stephen king books being adapted right now than there have ever been really yeah i mean you think about it like i send you stuff all the time like this person's doing langoliers this person is doing oh, tommy knockers yeah. this person's doing salem's lot this per- you know so someone just recently i can't remember all of them it's hard to keep track what you say? I think that's what it is. There's just been so yeah. many that and, – and I'm involved in so many Stephen King groups on like Facebook and, and Twitter and stuff that I yeah. I don't know. Well, this is not about Stephen King, but I just wanted to make the no. point that like it will <laughs> truly, I think, only take one quality film to do remotely well. And then Hollywood executives are going to be like, wait, Chuck Palahniuk works. OK, let's go do it because everybody's so risk averse. Yeah, he, they and then they realize that he's profitable and yeah. then can make them money. Uh, it's a shame that it wasn't this one. It wasn't Fight Club. Yeah, I think that he is so controversial that it it might be harder. But I still have faith. <laughs> I mean, Stephen King has had some disturbing things in his stories as well. However, oh yeah, oh definitely. Speaking of it. Yeah, I wouldn't say that like those disturbing aspects of Stephen King's books define his stories, yeah. whereas I think it's much different for the case of You are Chuck. so right. Um, yes, absolutely. So we'll see. We'll see. This movie actually debuted at the Venice Film Festival in 1999 and got mixed reactions then. Like People were really afraid that it was going to provoke people to carry out acts of violence. Yeah. And Fincher was like, it's satire, but, you know, he, he was like, I know people aren't going to get that. Yeah. It's a shame. Truly. It really is. But because uh, this, is is, this is a quality movie. Guess how many Oscar nominations it got? Oh, I don't know. Yes. Two? Three? Four? Four? Five? Six? Seven? One. For what? What category? Best sound effects editing. 
Oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. Like, basically like sound editing. They, they have changed the name of the award over the years. But as I was looking up the awards, I saw something that I really had never heard of before. And I thought that this was very interesting and I just wanted to share it with you. There are these awards called the Stinkers. They're called the Stinkers, the Bad Movie Awards, right? They were awards given out by a group of L.A. film buffs and critics to honor the worst film of the year, just like the Razzies do. But this lasted from 1978 to 2006. They don't do them anymore. That's probably why we've not heard of them. But I saw some of the nominations that this movie got for that, and I thought they were funny. I just wanted to share them with you. So... Helena Bonham Carter got Worst Supporting Actress, which is, I totally don't agree, but yeah, that's what happened. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Helena Bonham Carter also got Worst On-Screen Female Hairstyle. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. All right. All right. (laughs) I think that that, I think that that plays into her character. Oh yeah. Uh, I heard a story that she told her makeup artist that did her makeup for the movie to do her makeup with her left hand because she didn't want to seem like she'd be that well done up. Mm -hmm. You know, she didn't want to come across like she really was that good or cared that much about makeup and stuff. That's clever. But also let's take a look at like Helena Bonham Carter on a runway or any other, like her hair is not. Maybe it's just because I think I was probably mostly introduced to her as Bellatrix so strange yeah. Bellatrix Lestrange, but um, I, it's very easy to, to say that wrong. But I totally believe it if you told me she was like a witch. For sure. And she lived in a swamp. <laughs> you know what I mean? 100%. Yeah. But I yeah. love her. I think she's fantastic. I love witches. Same. So, uh, okay, also, worst on-screen male hairstyle, Brad Pitt, which I totally get. I hate what? Brad Pitt's hair in this movie. I feel like that was like iconic 90s. It is, but I don't like it. <laughs> And maybe you can tell me about this last one because this has the most intrusive musical score. Do I think that the soundtrack was like memorable? Probably not. But do I think it was like distracting or intrusive? No, that seems strange to me. I understand why these awards aren't around anymore. These are silly categories, but (laughs) it was just funny because when I was looking for Oscars, this is like one of the first things that came up. That's so weird. What year did these start again? 1978, and they lasted to 2006. What year did The Shining come out? Was that the 80s? 1980. Okay. Homework assignment for later. Oh, shut up. Only curious. No no particular reason. I'm (laughs) I'm sure it probably did, honestly. (laughs) People did not react kindly to that movie either. Listen to our Shining episode. Yeah, well, that's kind of what I thought of when you said that it wasn't really received very well, but now it's sort of like a cult classic. Um, It's one of the first things I thought of, so. Totally. So I'm going to go ahead and get the uh, Chuck portion of this episode out of the way. Uh, I think in take one, I said I had read 80% of his novels, and then in take two, said that I had read 12 of his novels. And I think he has like... 24 or 25 novels out right now, which means I am not even close to 80% of his novels, but I've read a lot. That's still a hell of a lot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I've, I've liked most of them. Uh, Survivor, Invisible Monsters, Choke, Lullaby, Diary, Haunted, Snuff, Tell All, Damned, Beautiful You, and Make Something Up. That's his short story, or one of his short story collections. Those are the ones that I've read. And reading his works, it's very interesting that he 
he he writes his books in a very unique way. I feel like almost every single one of his books is told in a different format. Like For a example, say that again. Like a gimmick. Yeah, sure. Because everyone loves a gimmick. <laughs> uh, so in Invisible Monsters, all of the chapters are shuffled, uh, which I guess isn't like too crazy. People. It just sounds like before. a pain in the ass. You told me <laughs> that think, before, but I'd be like, what the hell? So he actually came out with something called uh, Invisible Monsters, the remix. And I think it's with all the chapters. It's the same book, but all the chapters are put like in order or at least shuffled in a way that's more like Invisible Monsters. I'm sorry I did this. <laughs> this was stupid. Uh, so Diary, the book Diary is obviously written as a series of diary entries. Beautiful You, which was one of my favorites, uh, doesn't have any chapters. It's just one long, one long book. Uh, Pygmy is set as a series of documents, kind of like I think World War Z was. Yeah. Uh, and Survivor, which was I think his second book, uh, one of the first that I read of his, the page numbers run backwards. So you start at like 200 something and they count down all the way to to one being the last page, which was very interesting. That's and then really of course, cool. yeah, Fight Club uh, 2 and 3 are actually graphic novels. So there are sequels to Fight Club, the book, and those are graphic novels. Uh, and he also he has a coloring book, right? I was just going to say, he also has two coloring books out. One's a novella, one's a short story collection. So he has really like run the gambit with, with formats as far as his novels go, which it's like, that's creative. That's really, really cool. Uh, if you want a book that's sort of easily digestible, that will give you, I would say the clearest look at Chuck's style and sense of humor Invisible Monsters or Invisible Monsters Remix is probably the way to go. If you want to be disgusted beyond all reason, read Haunted. Uh, <laughs> next to Haunted, though, I think my favorite of his is Lullaby. It's a very short read. It's a very quick read. Uh, and it's really, really fun and interesting. It's about uh, this, I guess, this like old collection of lullabies that have been maybe passed down from generations or is still being sold and people are picking them up. And there's one specific lullaby that when mothers read them or sing them to their children or fathers, I guess, or anyone really, uh, suddenly the infants don't wake up the next morning. They have uh, sudden infant death syndrome. Oh my God. So I think it's, it's this, the main character goes on this quest with a few other people to try and find the purchasers of these books and and tear out the page that has the the lullaby in it and it's just like hijinks ensue and everything it's very fun it's very wacky it's very interesting really it's yeah. very fun and wacky i mean for a chuck book i think it's 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 tame in comparison to his other stuff but it's one of my favorites i i certainly love it though it's been a very long time since i've read it so that might have changed but i remember thoroughly enjoying that more than you know some of the others that i've read so I totally donated to that GoFundMe or kick, uh, Kickstarter or whatever, too. So I had no idea what that story was about. That yeah. is horrific. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, a lot of his stories and novels seem to have a very clear sort of anti-consumerist agenda or tone. Clearly, if you're, you know, watching Fight Club, that's that's no surprise. Yeah. And I think, I, I know for a fact that Survivor is, uh, I believe Pygmy and Adjustment Day are as well, all deal with cults of some kind. And I can only assume the following Fight Club graphic novels continue with Tyler's followers. Uh, his fan club site is even called The Cult. 
but his books very much revolve around more existential themes with the main characters sort of feeling out of place or maybe wronged or trying to chase some kind of meaning or feelings of importance in some way or another. And this is clear in a lot of his stories and characters. For The, the main character in uh, Lullaby, actually, I think one of the opening chapters is him talking about how he creates these toy models and buildings and then just stomps on them and smashes them with his bare feet and like gets all cut up and embedded plastic in his foot and everything. So there's a lot of these really severe kind of aggressive ways that his characters are trying to feel something. So I guess that's just to say that Fight Club really isn't a deviation much from his other works. Wow. Uh, coming back around to Fight Club, uh, this book was inspired when Chuck first got out of college. He was doing a job that he absolutely hated, much like our main character, and he was sort of desperate to find something different out of life, and someone came to him and invited him to their church. And at the church, he said that they have this giving tree, which had tasks on it that you could like take an ornament off and then go do that task. And one of the tasks was take someone from hospice on a date. And he said that more often than not, like he would go out and do it. And more often than not, the the people that he picked would like their date idea would be, um, can can you come with me to my support group or can you take me to my support group? Can I hitch a ride? And so doing all of these sessions and sitting in with these support groups, people would just assume that that he had the same disease that everyone else was there for. And he couldn't find a polite way to tell them that he didn't. Uh, but he did feel that sense of relief after going. And I oh, think wow. he felt a lot better about his, you know, quote, shitty life and sort of had the realization that, you know, it really could be worse. And it, it was a way for him to to get that feeling much like the main character, I guess, in in the story. That's awesome. Uh, this. Yeah. And this seems more prominent in the book for invisible monsters. Like this is where I think he kind of got the title for invisible monsters and the theme. He claims to have gone on a hike on vacation and gotten a huge fight with one of his uh, neighboring campers, huge, huge fight, got really, really beat up and coming back into work. No one would ask him about his black eyes and his, you know, bruises all over his body. And he claims that he, he thinks that they just didn't want that entry into a part of his private life which I think is sort of like invisible monsters. It's that idea that no one wants to talk about it. They just want to be ignored. And I think that's also where the whole no one talks about Fight Club thing kind of comes from. Just no one wants to bring it up. No one wants to talk about it. Yeah. And the last little bit here, uh, this is all from an interview that I'll link in the description. Uh, he speaks about the Cacophony Society. Have you heard of this? I've heard of it, but I don't know what, what that is. So it's pretty much what Project Mayhem is. Uh, according to Wikipedia, it was a randomly gathered network of free spirits united in the pursuit of experiences beyond the pale of mainstream society. Sounds very familiar. Uh, it's sort of it's sort of like this purge style group that they you know had very mundane lives. They had the same you know nine to five jobs. They were trying to look for something to give them more excitement in their lives. And they would form these societies, much like Fight Club, all over the world. They had different city chapters. There was one in Portland, one in L.A., one in San Francisco. I think there's one in Seattle. Uh, and much like the Purge, they would get, they would offer themselves like an hour or two every once in a while to just have these small bursts of pranks and vandalism and like 
try to temporarily soothe that urge for anarchy and chaos kind of thing. Um, so that's just sort of a background of where he got the idea for all of these stories and stuff. So that is uh, so interesting. A, yeah, it made me. Apparently, he was on a Joe Rogan podcast. I'm not the huge. I'm not a huge fan of Joe Rogan, but it makes me like that interview made me just want to listen to him forever. Like I, I would love to hear more about his works and how he constructs things and stuff. So yeah, that's that. That's Chuck. That's really cool. Actually speaking of, you know, implications in real life, this film inspired a Californian software engineer. And he was also a martial arts instructor named, he has a crazy name, Gintz Clemanis. I don't know if that's offensive to say that it's crazy. I'm sorry. He has a an interesting name. Uh, so he basically started the Gentleman's Fighting Club in his garage. And uh, there was even a short documentary made about it called Uppercut. And I, I watched it. It's only like eight minutes long, seven, seven to eight minutes long. And one interviewee refers to the fight as like, art he's making with the other person that's never existed in that way before. I guess it's kind of beautiful in some <laughs> regard. I'm not really a fighting kind of guy. This all feels a little bit too hyper-masculine for me, but I respect <laughs> that. Yeah. I, it's worth a watch. I'll link it. But I mean, it's the real deal. I mean, you see people fighting. You actually, it kind of starts off and you sort of see the outside of the garage and it's all in black and white and you can just hear a fight going on and it sounded pretty intense. <laughs> there are some discussions that I'll bring up later about how I don't experience this. Maybe I'm just not as masculine as, you know, some of the other men in the world about this urge for like consensual fighting and like roughhousing, I guess, uh, and how that's a big theme in this movie. So I guess that is truly a real thing. Like maybe, maybe if men were just allowed to let out some of that rage that I don't know, who knows, who knows how things would be different. Truly. Although that would be a whole thing in itself. I mean, that, that feels like you said, very purgy. Yeah. I saw an interview with Brad Pitt and Edward Norton where they were discussing the fact that it's like pretty difficult to accurately market this film. What is it about? You can't really do it justice in a brief sentence, you know? Yeah. yeah. But Edward Norton said something that was, it sounded pretty profound. Basically, he was like, if we can really catch the spirit of this book, that they would ultimately be holding up a mirror to modern society. Yeah. What's a shame is I don't feel like 22 years later, things are much different, you know? No. No. But Edward Norton said something else. This really stuck with me. He said his character essentially has to go insane in order to save himself. And I thought that was really interesting because a lot of times reality doesn't just feel boring or depressing. It feels like almost repulsive for a lot of people. And I think a lot of people take a passive approach to dealing with this by like immersing themselves in media, social media, film, you know, TV, music, or material things like buying everything in an Ikea catalog. You know, <laughs> Tyler's brain obviously wound up taking a much more active approach to dealing with this. But the brain trying to save itself makes him feel a little bit more relatable to me, you know, in that sense. Yeah. Because like, I, I don't, I can't connect to the fact that, oh, we need to beat each other to death. Just somebody struggling with mental illness, I can totally relate to. <laughs> 
I'll also bring this up later, but I think it's about balance. I think that this movie brings up a lot of great points. I think there there are messages here that we can take away from this about how to live properly in society while still maintaining some semblance of an identity and not kind of becoming these mindless consumerist zombies, essentially. Yeah. Um, the whole part when he holds the gun up to the the guy's head and tells him, like, you know, what have you always wanted to be? And finally forces it out of him. And he's like, I'm going to check up on you in a week. And if you're not doing this, I'm going to kill you. And it's like, that's a very aggressive approach. But like, how great would it be if someone held a gun over my head and said, hey, go chase your dreams. Otherwise, like, like that would be a great kick in the ass. Totally. Um, so I think there are points that uh, that Tyler Durden, like there are intelligent things about his character, but it is all about balance because there are things that sort of go beyond reason Um and safety, obviously. So, oh, definitely. I mean, he very clearly goes over the edge and then has to pull back. Yeah. Uh, at the end, he realizes it, and then it's like, okay, I have to salvage anything I can. And it turns out you really can't, but he tries. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I can talk about the differences between the book and the movie if you'd like. Oh, good. I was hoping that you did that. I thought maybe you hadn't because you said you were done with Chuck. So good. Let's keep talking about Chuck. So, oh yeah, I guess, I guess this really does fall into that. But uh, it is very closely related to to the movie. I think they did a great job adapting it, uh, much like they did with, with Gone Girl. In the novel, Tyler and the narrator meet at a nude beach. Uh, he meets Tyler there building a wooden sculpture of a hand that catches the narrator's attention and that's how they get to talking. Well, that's weird. In one of the fights, the narrator in the book gets beat up so badly that he has like a massive hole in his cheek for the remainder of the story. And for reasons that are understandable, they didn't include that in the film because that would require a lot of CGI and and makeup work and stuff. So, But doesn't he blow a hole in his cheek at the end at the very end but like this is saying that partway through the book he had a fight that was so bad that it left a hole in his cheek i mean that makes sense but that's cool that they at least referenced it at the end yeah i mean he still does that in the book he still shoots himself in the mouth in the book and still so gets, he puts another hole yeah i guess so does it go through that hole <laughs> i don't know i don't know if it was the same cheek or not i don't know i'm sorry that would be funny <laughs> no it's okay it's like matching holes in his in both cheeks or like the only thing that saved him is it went through the hole in, his <laughs> in the novel tyler actually plans to become a martyr for project mayhem and he actually intends on staying in one of the buildings that were supposed to be blown up but of course the plan is foiled by the narrator at some point the novel ends with the narrator shooting himself, but he wakes up believing that he is in heaven, that he's ascended to heaven, and that the people around him and supporting him are like gods and angels and stuff. Turns out he wakes up in a mental institution where the doctors and hospital workers and everyone surrounding him are workers that are revealed to be members of project mayhem who are all like hey tyler we're here to save you we know we're gonna get you back into condition and reading this made me want to read the book and then read the sequels because i would love to see how all of that like comes together full circle that would be super cool totally 
Uh, and then just a brief thing here. I know we talked about the I am Jack's so-and-so and everything. Yeah. And everyone was kind of speculating maybe that's the character's name. According to the things that I read in the graphic novel, his name is actually Sebastian, which is – so it's it's not Jack apparently. But some of the things that I read that uh, there are a lot of in – the, in the novel, there are a lot of I am Jack's so-and-so and I am Jill's so-and-so. And I think uh, okay. I think we're supposed to gather that he's sort of referencing your average average Joe or average Jane and like this monotony character of your like average American consumer's life that it's like I am like I'm no one. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. So uh yeah, I mean otherwise it, it stayed pretty loyal to the book, I think. Um that was really That's awesome. to find. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I like the ending that we got in the movie. It's cool that the book maybe sort of set up the sequels or at least left it open. Whereas, you know, the ending that we got in the movie seems much more ambiguous, but I like the movie ending, not just because of the dick. (laughs) It was beautiful. Like there's no denying that is an iconic ending of a film. Yeah. I do want to bring up these sets of points as well before I forget them, because we had that discussion in take two about how, a good twist is one that you could have seen coming the whole time. Well, that you can play backwards. Right. You can rewatch the movie and it doesn't fly in the face of anything. So here are some points that I found that maybe might convince you more that this actually was a twist that was set up properly and that there are like very small details that I know I missed and that maybe you might have okay, missed yeah, as well. Okay, yeah, I'd like to hear them. Uh, so I, I think this one's more obvious, but just in case you didn't catch this, when he first meets Tyler, do you remember what he comments on when he first sees him? Is we have the same briefcase. Right, right. So that's like yeah. clue numero uno. Uh, during the scene when he's calling Tyler from the payphone, and Tyler doesn't answer right away, he hangs up, and then the phone rings again. As the phone is ringing, we get a close-up of the phone. There's a little note that says, this phone does not accept incoming calls. <laughs> so it's in his head. This one blew my mind. Uh, there's there's the car crash scene. Yeah. Who was driving before they were crashing? Tyler. Tyler was. Brad Pitt. After the crash, Tyler. so the car's upside down. Yeah. Tyler gets out of the passenger seat and pulls Ed Norton out of the driver's seat. What? Yeah. I had to play it back and just to make sure, and it is absolutely true. Absolutely true. That's really cool. Yeah, right, right? Uh, When they get on the bus, this one's debatable. I had to look back at this one too. Uh, But when they get on the bus together, you can only hear one fare charge. So like when they put the money in, you can only hear one, even though they both get on the bus. I like how minuscule that is, but that's perfect. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, And then again, there's much smaller minuscule things that we talk about in take two where uh, if he was talking to anyone in the basement, the other altar was shown in the background watching or reacting from afar. And I think I, d- I didn't look at specifics here, but there were a lot of talk about or there was a lot of talk about if they were together and talking to someone, someone, whoever was talking with them was always looking at Ed Norton and not at Tyler, even even if Tyler was talking. So, gotcha. so yeah, just some things that I I uh, thought were really cool in that I didn't notice at first. So now you know. Yeah, I really liked all of those. That's great. Speaking of Tyler, there is actually, if you if you get the DVD, apparently there is, uh, you know how like they have that warning that comes up on the screen before the movie <laughs> plays? And apparently there is like a second warning that comes up and it's from Tyler. And it's only there for a second. So you have to pause it to be able to read it. But I'm going to read it for you. So I didn't write this. This is... 
I'm quoting this. It says, if you are reading this, then this warning is for you. Every word you read of this useless fine print is another second off your life. Don't you have other things to do? Is your life so empty that you honestly can't think of a better way to spend these moments? Or are you so impressed with authority that you give respect and credence to all who claim it? Do you read everything you're supposed to read? Do you think everything you're supposed to think? Buy what you're told you should want? Get out of your apartment. Meet a member of the opposite sex. Stop the excessive shopping and masturbation. Quit your job. Start a fight. Prove you're alive. If you don't claim your humanity, you will become a statistic. You have been warned, Tyler. What a very Tyler thing to say. Yeah. That was perfect. (laughs) Uh, I just have some extras to close out my research. It is believed that Chuck Palahniuk is the one who originated the term snowflake. Huh? So it was mentioned both in the book and the movie, and I don't think it was mentioned in a way that we use it today. I think he said something like, you are not a beautiful and unique snowflake. You're kind of, you're just a small piece to the masses kind of thing. Gotcha. Uh, And I think nowadays people have turned that into like, oh, if you're a snowflake, you're something that's like fragile. I don't think that was the intention, but it is one of the only things in media that we've found that, I say we, I didn't really search this, but, um, or discover this, but it was, it's believed that he, he is the originator of that term, I guess. Uh, another fun behind the scenes fact is that there's a Starbucks cup in almost every shot of the film that's meant to really drive home that whole consumerism vibe and theme. Oh, wow. Yeah. And just to go over some of the like philosophy and themes behind this movie, I think there's a lot of this movie that surrounds emasculation. Uh, Some of the more prominent things being the narrator at a testicular cancer support group surrounded by men who literally have no balls and have big breasts. He's surrounded by men who feel like they've lost some of their identity. And then the movie evolves into men coming together and finding themselves and giving themselves purpose. And I think this can be seen most with Robert Paulson and his character's development. I think Fight Club gives Robert his sense of masculinity back. He's able to tap into these primal urges, like I said before, to play rough in a consensual way. But again, I think this movie is about balance. Uh, I think if we took the two ends of this this spectrum, which is uh, Tyler Durden and the narrator and both of their lives, we have Tyler driving home the idea that we have to resist becoming these consumer zombies where through our desire to be unique, we're, we're just like everyone else. Like we, we want to have everything that's new. We want to have the newest iPhone. We want to have a coffee every day from Starbucks. And through that, we are just like everyone else, even though it feels like we're creating our own identity kind of thing. But we're really just feeding into this consumer system. But with the Mayhem agents you get stripped of your humanity anyway. Like you're, you're kind of, you get your hair cut, you own two pairs of pants and two shirts. You sort of become these mindless zombies who follow just a different system. You lose your name, you lose your entire identity. And the narrator at the beginning talking about his life is explaining how everything's a copy of a copy of a copy. And we come to find that Project Mayhem, it's the same exact thing. It's the escape that he used to get out of his mundane life it's, it's not different at all. So I think, again, it's about balance and how both sides of the spectrum are, are not, you know, best, I guess. That's beautiful. Yeah. I think it comes full circle when we see Tyler threatening to cut the balls off of anyone who tries to 
cross him. Mm-hmm. I think it's like a comment on misogyny and its effect on power and power's effect on misogyny and how oftentimes it's incredibly like hypocritical. I think it's also clear when the narrator blames the start of all of his problems on Marla, how everything changed when this bitch Marla arrived and tried to steal mm-hmm. what was his and tried to take away this like this this place of relief for him. And yet his alter ego is fucking her 24-7. Yeah. So it's like this internal battle of of this hypocritical balance, I guess. And then I also saw just a quick note here that uh, this movie is sort of a symbol for fascism versus capitalism and how both are sort of equally terrible in excess. Definitely. Uh, And it's not, uh, I feel like I've said this before, but it's not two sides of different coins. It's two sides of the same coin and how both, you know, are dangerous in excess. And I think it makes perfect sense with this movie. So totally that wraps up my research. Cool. Good deal. Good deal. That was great. I just have a couple little points. I thought this was kind of cute. David Fincher actually got Brad Pitt to read this script. He just showed up at his door one day and insisted that he let him take him to go uh, for a beer. He showed up on Brad Pitt's door. Yeah. That's funny. (laughs) Isn't that cute? I, I don't know. I just thought that was funny. So if you notice, one of the rules of Fight Club is that they're like, no shoes, no shirt. Yeah. But Bob is the only one that actually still wears a shirt. Yeah, true. I mean, it's clearly because Meatloaf does not have large <laughs> women breasts. But I did learn that the fat suit that he wears weighed over 100 pounds. Oh, my God. Yeah. Can you imagine? Like, that sucks. <laughs> and then this last thing is just blew my mind. Okay, apparently the Friday that the film came out theatrically in the U.S., Rosie O'Donnell still had her show and she said that she had seen the film already and she was talking about it and she said that she had been able, unable to sleep ever since. Oh my God. And then she literally gave away the twist ending and told everyone to not see the movie. What? She ruined the movie for her entire audience. That is so fucked up. Yeah. Anyway, I really actually had fun doing this. I was a little bit skeptical. I didn't know this was the kind of movie that I would enjoy researching, but I actually really did enjoy it. (laughs) This one made me want to go out and do more and watch more Chuck stuff. Do you want to fight next time we see each other? No, not at all. I will kick your ass. I know you would. No, I would never (laughs) kick your ass. I would never fight you. Because you know I'd win. (laughs) Yep. Hey everyone, it's Nick. I hope that you enjoyed episode 41 of Take 3, a movie podcast. We really enjoyed doing it. If you want to hear more episodes, go to take3amp.com. That's the number three, you know that. Follow us on social media, Take3AMP, also the number three. And um, leave us a, a like and a review and all of that stuff on any place that you can. And uh, go out and punch a stranger. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week or whenever we get around to it. Bye.